Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you so much for being our God. God, we give you praise that you care for us, Lord, that you desire a relationship with us. Lord, we, we are so thankful that your desire is that all should come to repentance and receive salvation, that none should be lost. And we thank you, Lord, for your patience. Lord, we pray, dear God, that you'd open up your word to us tonight, especially as we approach things to come. Lord, give us wisdom. And uh, Father, I just pray that you would help me to speak truthfully your word. And Lord, we also ask that you'd help us to apply it so that we would leave this room different than how we came in. We just thank you, dear God, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, if you remember, we're, we're in, in Mark chapter 13, and I just want to give you a little bit of background. Mark chapter 13 is what we call the Olivet Discourse. And this, is, this would be Wednesday afternoon of the last week of Christ's life. He is leaving the temple, and as he left the temple, last week we shared that prophecy that he gave, that not one stone would be left upon another of that temple. And sure enough, in 70 AD, the Roman uh, emperor, Titus Vespasia, went in there, destroyed the whole temple, burnt Jerusalem down, and, uh, and we still have uh, stones falling on the ground from that time, just like Jesus said it would happen. And uh, so now he, he had moved out from the temple up to the Mount of Olives. They're kind of overlooking Jerusalem. And Jesus is starting to, to prophesy. He's actually asked, been asked a question by the disciples, when are these things going to happen? What, what is going to be the signs of these things happening? And when is everything going to come to an end? And so Jesus has started answering his disciples in that question. And now they were more specifically asking about the temple being destroyed. But Jesus is going into much more detail. Now, there have been lots of people over the years who have predicted the end of the world. For instance, just recently we had the Mayan calendar. If you remember December 21st, 2012, that was the, that was the, the D-Day date set for the end of the world. Uh, the, the great cycle, the Mayan calendar had basically had been, had ended on that day. And they had decided that, well, hey, maybe because the Mayan calendar ended and it had been ongoing for 5,000 years, maybe they're telling us something that December 21st, 2012 is it. And as a result, we had a guy in China building an ark. And we saw uh, extensive cells of survival kits of that date in 2012. The problem is they didn't have the word of God. And we know that although that the end is yet to come, we know that the, the removal of the church can happen at any time. But we know there will be specific things that we're going to see happen before the end comes. And we'll be talking about that tonight. And then, of course, we had Harold Camping. You remember him, the billboards all over the place in 2011 that said that the end of the world is coming. And they, they put out all this money to publicize this. Now, that was the second time he predicted the end. The first time was in 1994. And he had made these predictions that the, the, the world would end and... Um, the, the, he calculated exactly 7,000 years after the biblical flood. When the date passed without incident, he declared his math to be off and pushed back the end to the October 21st, 2011. And, of course, that didn't happen. And then, you know, in 1910, they were afraid because Helly's Comet was coming too close to the earth. And they said that um, th this was a, an actual quote in newspapers, headlines, Comet may kill all earth life, says scientists. 
And a group in Oklahoma decided it would be a good idea to sacrifice a virgin to ward off this impending doom. How terrible. And of course, 1910 came and passed and so did Haley's Comet and the earth was still here. Joseph Smith, last week we talked about some of his prophecies and how, what he said would happen. And he prophesied that the new Jerusalem would be built and the new temple would be built in Missouri. And this is what he said. He said, verily, this is the word of the Lord, that the city, New Jerusalem, be built the gathering of the saints beginning at this place, even the place of the temple, which temple shall be reared in this generation. For verily, this generation shall not pass away until a house shall be built unto the Lord. Um, and, and that was in 1832. He made that prophecy. And even up to... To 1870, Orson Pratt, one of the followers of Joseph Smith and the Latter-day Saints, was saying, surely God would not lie to us. This temple, the new Jerusalem will come. He'll honor his promises. And the problem wasn't with God. The problem was with the prophet. That was the problem. And, of course, one of my favorite false prophets of the end times is the prophet hen of Leeds. I don't know if you've heard of this hen, but in 1806... A domesticated hen was laying eggs inscribed with the message, Christ is coming. And people from all over the world were visiting this hen. And they were beginning to despair and worry about the coming judgment. But it was soon discovered that the owner of the hen was actually writing the message and then shoving it back up the hen so that it would come out. Poor, the poor hen. You know, prophets, false prophets come and go. And, and many people want to predict the end. And we've seen it in different cults. We've seen the Jehovah's Witnesses predict the end so many times. I mean, all you've got to do if you want to find out that, just Google Jehovah's Witnesses into the world. And you'll get a whole list of dates of all the times that they predicted the end of the world. And we're going to see that that's utter foolishness today because of what Jesus says. Well, and we'll get to that in a minute. But let's start first with this passage where we picked off. Now remember... We left off last week in Mark 13 with Jesus telling us that things are not going to get better. More peace is not going to happen. Well, there will be a false peace that happens. But things aren't going to get better in this world. Things are actually going to get worse. And there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes. But these are just the birth pains. And then, of course, Jesus told the disciples that, that you're going to be persecuted, that people are going to betray you. Close loved ones will betray you. For my name's sake, but the gospel must be preached to the nations. The gospel has to go out to the nations. So that was our charge last week, to keep taking the gospel message out because the end is not yet here. And then we get into this week, verse 14. Now, and one last thing I want to say before we read this passage. We're overlooking Jerusalem on the garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. We are overlooking Jerusalem. Much of this prophecy here in the Olivet Discourse is a geocentric prophecy. So we have to set it in the time, the place, and with the people. So you're, we're going to find that much of this prophecy to the day, to, to, that we're going to read today, is going to be more for the Jew, not for the church. I don't believe that the scriptures teach that we'll be here, and I'll go into that in a minute. But, but that's who we're speaking about. There, the question is about the temple. When is this all going to be destroyed? And then Jesus proceeds. So let's go ahead with verse 14. But when you see the abomination 
of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you these things beforehand. So Jesus is helping the disciples to know that he's giving them some signs that the end is coming, that we're getting close. And it first starts with the birth pains. Now we move into this abomination of desolation. And, and it's interesting because this is a clear reference back to Daniel chapter 9. And when, when it's written here in Mark, Mark makes a point to do something kind of unique in the Greek. The word standing, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, it, the, the word, the he is not actually in the Greek, it's actually in that word standing. It's a, a participle. And what Mark did was he made that participle in a masculine form. Versus leaving it neuter. So he's not saying when you see the abomination of desolation happening. No, when you see this person that we call the abomination of desolation, when he is standing there, you'll know that things, that it's time to run, to get out. And you can't help but see the urgency in this passage. Now, Jerusalem homes are built with stairs on the sides of the house. So that's why he says if you're not up on the rooftop, don't go down into the house. Just get out of town. Don't bother going back inside the house for a cloak. Run down the stairs and out of the city. Get out of there as fast as possible. Because a tribulation, a time, a, a, a terrible time like has never been seen before is going to happen. A terrible destruction. This abomination that causes desolation. Turn with me over to Daniel chapter 9. And let's talk about this, the, the antichrist or the abomination that causes de- desolation. i gotta, I got to turn in my... Book here, my Bible. Um, okay, there we go. Daniel chapter 9. And let's go to verse 23, I believe is where I started. 24. Okay, 24. So let me just set this real fast. Daniel has been given a prophecy. And the first part of this prophecy is called the 70 weeks. And the first part of this prophecy deals with the coming Messiah. And here's, here's what it says. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. So Daniel's question is being asked. He's praying to the Lord. And now Daniel's in Babylon. He, he, he longs to go back to Jerusalem, longs to go back to Israel, because Nebuchadnezzar has carried them off captive. And he's praying, and, and God gives him this prophecy. And what the prophecy tells him is that, hey, 70 weeks till everything's wrapped up. 
70 weeks, okay? Now, the week is each week is representing uh, more than an actual seven-day period. And we'll go on to, to look at this. So, so he says, verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So the first part of the prophecy is when you hear the, the, the proclamation, go rebuild Jerusalem, start your clock, start counting, Daniel, because you're going to have seven weeks from that point in time until in, in 62 sevens it shall be built again. So, uh, sorry, no, no one understand, therefore, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in troubled time. Now, if we were to do the math, and I don't have time tonight to go into it all, and we're not studying Daniel 9 tonight, but, but if we were to go into this completely, we would see the temple finished from the time that it was restored, right on, on the money with what Daniel's prophecy says, right after the first seven. Then we would see, if we counted out, we would see the point in time in which the anointed one shows up. Jesus entering into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, 62 sevens. We would count those, those dates right up to Jesus' arrival, his first arrival. Then he says this, and after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. That's the death of the Messiah. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Verse 27, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, in Daniel 11, he helps us understand these weeks. Because in Daniel 11, he mentions more about the time frame and the numbers of days. And so this last week is a seven-year period. Each week is seven years. And this last week is a seven-year period. And that half week is a three-and-a-half-year period. And this last week that Daniel talks about is the great tribulation period. Now, we have to understand, when we talk about the day of the Lord, or the day of wrath, or the time of Jacob's trouble... Or the, or the tribulation period, we're talking about the whole period, not just one Jesus showing up, okay? The day of the Lord is the entire seven-year period, okay? And we'll, I'll show you that in Mark later on when Jesus talks about this. So we, what we find here in this 70 weeks, Daniel nails it to the day of Jesus' first coming and his crucifixion, but then wait, what happened to the 70th week? What happened to that last week? And I want to tell you right now that we're not there yet. We're going to see what kicks that off. But, but this prophecy is given to the Jews, to Israel. And there's this pause, this, this, the, the way I interpret the scriptures, the way, the way we see this, there's this pause that we would call the church age. The time for the, all the nations hearing the gospel. The time for us coming to the Lord. A time when Israel has been blinded and will eventually come back to the Lord. That's right now, we're in that pause in between, but we're waiting for that 70th week to start up. And this is where Jesus' prophecy picks up. So Jesus says, when you see that abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, this is the one. Now, let me just talk about the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist. 
If Jesus hadn't given this prophecy, most of us would think that this was speaking about Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes was a, a Ptolemyan king. If you remember, Alexander the Great came, conquered everything. He's like, hey, I'm Alexander the Great. And everybody's like, okay, cool. And we'll give up our land. Just kidding. Anyway, Alexander the Great conquered everything. And then he died. And by the way, Daniel chapter 11. Read Daniel chapter 11 and Daniel spells out everything that happens. And Daniel chapter 11, or uh, Alexander the Great died. He left, he broke up his territory into four kings, just like Daniel 11 says would happen. And one of those was Ptolemy and one was Seleucid. Seleucid took over Egypt and Alexandria in Egypt. And the Ptolemies took over Canaan and Israel and Syria. And that was their kind of portion. Well, they were constantly fighting back and forth over Israel. And finally, Antiochus Epiphanes, and, and his name is Epiphanes, means manifest. And Antiochus actually thought he was, Zeus he was Zeus reincarnated. So he actually thought, I'm Zeus manifest. That's who I am. I'm the God Zeus. And he was bent on Hellenizing the Jews, turning the Jews into Greeks. He, he wanted to get them doing the Greek gymnasium and and uh, looking like Greeks and taking part in games like Greeks and acting like Greeks. And for a Jew, there could be no worse of, of, a, a, of betraying their, their word and the Torah and everything to, and to start acting like the Gentiles. Well, Antiochus went down to Egypt to start a fight with Seleucids. Rome stepped in and said, whoa, 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 back up your armies. And Antiochus said, let me think about this for a minute. And the Roman... General took his cane and drew a circle around Antiochus and said, make your decision before you leave that circle. It's like, talk about being called on the carpet. Antiochus said, I think we're going back to, to Cana. And so he went back and he was angry. He was really angry in 168. So he decided that he was going to take it out on the Jews. He goes into the temple and he started attacking the Jews surrounding the city it was a terrible, when you read the history of what was going on in the Maccabees, it was a terrible, terrible time of persecution. He went into the temple, erected a new altar, and sacrificed a pig on the altar, saying he was God. Now, that is an abomination to the Jews, and it will cause desolation. And we would actually look at that and say, well, maybe that's what Daniel was talking about. But now Jesus, later on, says, nope. That wasn't it. It's yet to come. So then we fast forward to 70 AD and we say, well, maybe it was Titus Vespasia. When he marched into the temple and he destroyed the temple and he put an end to sacrifice, maybe that's that guy. And I, and I want to tell you, none of them fit perfectly with Daniel's prophecy. You see, with prophecy, there's always a near and a far aspect. And a lot of times you'll, you'll read about someone or a situation that's ongoing, and that's the near aspect. Jesus talked about the, the destruction of the temple. That was the near aspect. But there's yet a far aspect looking out. And when we start to read prophecy that way, we'll see that in Daniel 11, Daniel's talking about Alexander the Great. He talks about the different Ptolemy kings. He talks about the Romans. He talks about, and of course, he's not naming the people. He's just naming kings that are coming and things that will happen. And when he gets to Antiochus Epiphanes, he's talking about him. But then he jumps into something else and it says that this, this king will conquer Egypt and take its riches. Well, Antiochus never did that. Antiochus never finished that. 
And it wasn't three and a half years that he put an end to sacrifice in the temple for. It was a much shorter time. So he doesn't fit. It's like when you're putting together a puzzle or you're playing with one of those child's toys with, you know, the shapes. And you take the square and try to jam it into a circle. Or you try to, ah, I can't figure out this puzzle. I'm just going to shove it in here, this piece. It doesn't work. But there's something about when you have the right piece that fits in the right place, there's satisfaction that comes with that. I'll tell you right now, when you're doing a puzzle and you're like playing with the different pieces and you find that piece, it's like instant gratification. Every time, every piece that fits, you're like, yes, that's the right one. Feeling good about myself. Now, I, my puzzles are usually down to about 25 pieces, so I'm sure most of you, most of you are doing much more. But there's something so satisfying about it, and it's the same with prophecy. When God gives us prophecy and we see it fulfilled over and over in Scripture, it's perfect. It's the right piece. It's satisfying. We don't have to try to allegorize something or make it fit. We just wait for it. You know, many, many people over the years, the centuries have said, oh, well, there's no more Israel. Uh, so J Jesus isn't really talking about a real Israel. It's a spiritual Israel. It's only the church. The church is replacing Israel. But then what happened? 1948 came around. Boom, there's Israel again. And what? Oh, they're drawing everybody from all over the world. Wait, hold on. Oh, that's right. God said it would happen. And that's how prophecy is. And so Jesus says that this abomination that causes desolation will be standing where he ought not to be and understand that when this happens, get out of town. Get out of Jerusalem because destruction is coming. And then he goes on to talk about how these days will, if they would not been cut short, no human being would be saved. And, of course, we get much more information from, from the Old Testament prophets and, of course, um, the book of Revelation. The days are coming that are going to get a lot worse. And people will say, look, here's the Christ. Look, there he is, but do not believe it. Let's go to verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power. And glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, I believe that scripture scripture teaches us that the church will be absent from this time of tribulation, and the reason why is there's other passages, not here in the Olivet Discourse, but but in, in uh, the letter to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus promises that because you've been faithful to keep my word, I will be faithful to take you out, keep you out of the great tribulation or the, the trial that will come upon the whole earth. And, and of course, Jesus, God has not appointed his church to wrath. And that's exactly what the tribulation period is. It's the day of wrath, a day of judgment. So during this time, we see here in Mark a stark contrast between the false Christ and some false miracles. Look, here's the Christ. Look, there he is to the real Christ returning. Returning on the clouds. But in those days, after that tribulation, there's this contrast. The sun's going to be darkened. The moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers in heaven will be shaken. Man, what an incredible contrast of what's going to happen. I, I don't know what it's going to look like. I know when the time happens, the puzzle piece will fit perfectly. And we're like, oh, that's what he meant by the, 
sun will be dark and the moon won't give its light. But I'll tell you, when these things start to happen, it, it, <laughs> there'll be no question about it. The coming of the Son of Man is happening. Remember, remember the disciples sitting there after Jesus had ascended into heaven? They're kind of waiting around. They just saw Jesus ascend into heaven in Acts chapter 1. And they're, they're kind of waiting there going, what's going on? And then the angel shows up and like, why are you still here? <laughs> like, don't you know? He's coming back the same way he left. He's coming back. And we need to understand that. And this will be that coming. Jesus coming back. And there will be no mistaking him coming. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. I don't know what this refers to. And I, I, I did a lot of study on this particular verse. And I can't help but think that this is somehow referring to not necessarily the, the, the physical powers, but spiritual powers. Because we know in Revelation there will be a point in time in which Satan is expelled from heaven completely. And uh, so I don't, I don't know if that's what this is referring to. But we do know that when he comes, it won't be to die. It will be to reign. It won't be to surrender. It will be to, to conquer. That is the coming Jesus Christ. And then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Mark 13, verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. At the very gates, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I have a fig tree in my front yard, and when we first uh, bought our house and moved in, it was uh, January. And by the way, that happens every service, midway through the service. So if any of you know anything about static electricity, we have a theory that that's what it is. So talk to me afterwards. Um. From the fig tree learns, I have this fig tree in my front yard, and when we first moved in, I thought it was actually a dead tree, because um, it was just wood, like, <laughs> it just looked dead. <laughs> and then, uh, sure enough, springtime comes around, and it starts getting tender, and all of a sudden, these leaves start sprouting off of it. And right now, my wife is just realizing we have a fig tree. <laughs> I can see her in the back. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, uh, and, and then it starts turning green, and like right now, if you came by my house, you'd see this fig tree, and it's like, wow, it's a really beautiful tree. But come wintertime, it looks like a dead tree. Jesus says, learn from the fig tree. Now, some commentators have proposed that this is a real in-depth meaning for this verse. Some say, oh, this is talking about Jerusalem and the Jews, or this is referring back to the cursing of the fig tree. I think it's much more simple. It's just saying, just like when you see a tree and know the season is changing, Watch for these signs. Watch for these things. and Because you'll know summer is near. When you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Which generation? You know what? I'll tell you right now. We're not going to know what Jesus was talking about in this verse. There's lots of theories. But I'll just tell you right now, we don't know. Was, was he talking about that the Jews will not pass away? The generation who hears this, the Jews will never pass was, was he talking about the disciples? Well, clearly he wasn't talking about the disciples because they've passed away. Is, is it talking about the generation that sees these signs happening, that sees the abomination that causes desolation? Is it talking about that generation? 
to me that's more plausible. But I don't know what Jesus was talking about. And trust me, if I don't figure it out, I'll be the one asking the dumb question with Christ. I'm like, okay, so what do you mean by this? <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, Dave. <laughs> so <laughs> I know you guys will be like, oh, I don't want to ask a dumb question, but I'll just I'll step up. Verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Isn't that amazing? He's just been talking about the moon not giving its light, the sun not, not giving light, the moon being darkened, the stars falling down. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, they will not pass away. Jesus is saying everything I say will happen just as I say it will. Everything I speak will come true. And that puts us in a position of asking a question. Do we believe him? There's certainly enough evidence to believe him. There's certainly a temple that's been fallen down. Certainly all the things that he did say would happen would happen. For instance, he said that he was going to a cross. He said that in three days he would rise again from the dead. These things happened just as he said they would happen. Do you believe him? Because I'll tell you right now, he also says that a judgment is coming. And I want to know that my salvation is safe with him. I want to know that I don't have to go to that judgment. I don't want to go to that judgment. I want to have a relationship with the Father. And there's only one way to know the Father, and that's through the Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 32, Jesus says this, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Be vigilant. Don't be, don't be apathetic in your faith. Be awake. Be alert. Be about doing the master's business until he returns for, his, for us, his church. We don't know. Now, if this prophecy was for the church, I would say that we would have a time frame. As soon as we see the Antichrist show up and make that covenant, and then break it in the middle of the temple, we could start the clock and say, all right, three and a half years, Jesus, you're coming. Here we go. You know, we, we would be able to do that. But I don't think we'll be, able, we'll be here. And that's why I don't, I don't think that we will see this happen. I believe that the, the, the scriptures clearly teach that Jesus could come at any moment for his church. At any moment we could be removed. Now, maybe you're in this audience and you're not a part of his church. And I'll tell you right now, remember this sermon it could very well save your life eternally. You'll know, oh, whoa, that crazy pastor talking about all that crazy stuff. It, it actually happened. They, they've got to be with the Lord. All literally wrath is breaking loose on the earth. And I know this is happening. Now, I don't believe we'll, we'll be in that. If for some reason we are, I'll tell you I was wrong. And I'll say start the clock. But I think clear, Scripture clearly teaches that Christ can come at any moment and his church is to be ready. And the way he ends this prophecy, telling us that concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. Remember I said the term day of the Lord, 
day of wrath, time of Jacob's trouble, is not talking about a specific day that Jesus arriving here back on planet earth. That's not what it's talking about. That day, the time of all this tribulation, the time of the end, when these things are going to happen, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man. Jesus is, that, that here we get a, a peek into the incarnation and the fact that even while he was here on earth, he was limited in some knowledge. We assume he knows now. Of course, he gave that prophecy in the book of Revelation to John. But no one knows the day or the hour. Not even those false prophets. So if you hear people going, oh, yeah, you know what? Into the world is coming. <laughs> Boy, you're a really special guy. You're, you're actually more important than G God's son. Yeah, no. <laughs> they don't know the end is coming. Don't believe them. Don't trust people that put together their mathematical things. You know, people ask me questions because there's always something. Right now, the, the popular things uh, in prophe prophecy is the, the Shemitah and the blood moons. And all these sorts of things. And, and they get really excited. And, oh, Dave, have you heard about this? Oh, man, you got to be teaching people about this. I'm like, first of all, if it's not in the Bible, I'm not teaching it. Secondly, because <laughs> we're just going to look like fools, I'll tell you right now. Secondly, let's just see what happens. <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'll tell you if, if you're right, if it's some sign. And I'm not too worried because Jesus is taking me home, so that's pretty good. So... But we are to be on our guard. We don't know about the day. And I believe that the rapture event is what kicks off that day. I think as soon as the church is removed, the book of Thessalonians and um, the book of John talk about the removal of the one keeping that man of perdition or the Antichrist from deceiving the people. So I believe when the church is removed, the day is kicked off. And the day of tribulation, the day of wrath, the time of Jacob's trouble is all going to happen and start in. So be on guard. Keep awake. Don't fall asleep. Jesus gives a very simple parable. Hey, it's like the, the master of a house going on a trip. Are you ready for him coming back? Are you ready or are you asleep? Are you getting lazy? Are, 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 you, are you doing what he told you to do while he was gone? You know, apathy and laziness always sets in. It always does. At every job. And, and if you've said that you've done a job and never gotten apathetic or lazy with your job, I, I applaud you. Because I, I just think it's a part of human nature. To start out really strong when you have a job or a career. To, to really be excited about changing things up and really make a difference and make an impact. Just like when we come to Christ and we realize that he paid it all for us. Wake up. <laughs> just like <laughs> he paid it all for us. He paid it all. By the way, that was perfect timing. I just want you to know. We're talking about waking up, so thank you. I'll, I'll pay you after. No. Um, we, we, we're all excited. We're, we're excited to do this work. But then as, as it becomes just the normal pace of things, we get dull, lazy, tired, and apathetic. And then we get an employee review. And the review says, well, Hey, what happened here? You started out doing so good. You were employee of the month five times and whatever. Especially if you're an employee of the month of a job with one employee, you're doing really well. So I, I was employee of the month like that. No. Um, but, but, but they do the review and things aren't going so well. Or your boss gets on you for being lazy or whatever and you're kind of offended by it and incensed by it. But that's the same call. Jesus He's the man going on the journey. And he's put his servants in charge, each with 
His work, each with a work. Each of us have been given a work to do. We, we've each got that work to do. And by the way, the big work, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. That's the big work. But how that works out in you, as you are a father, a husband, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a, a daughter, a, a, a son, a brother, a sister, a, you know, whatever you do for a living, how that works out, that's between you and the Lord. All right, Lord, how am I going to make disciples in my workplace or in my home? How am I going to do this? How am I going to honor you in all that I do? But stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Now, this illustration that Jesus gives when you see these first century homes, and, and I, I, I think they're a lot like uh, third world country homes. Uh, in Nepal, they, and it's just very much like all other third world countries, you have a house and you have this gate. You know, the gate shuts at night and it locks. And if someone wants to come into the house, you know, especially late at night, they've got to pound on the gate. You can't get in. And somebody's got to wake up and walk outside because you don't want intruders coming in. And so if this master is saying, hey, I'm going on a journey. I don't know when I get back. Your job is to stay awake and wait for me. You don't want to be caught off guard. My dad told me when he was in Vietnam, it was essential for him to stay awake when he was put on guard duty. And uh, they were out in the jungles. And if you fell asleep, not only, I mean, he said, they're serious about it. They can shoot you for it. You can be court-martialed and you can be put to death for it. But um, he was saying that, that if you fell asleep on your, on your fellow soldiers, on your platoon, they wouldn't forgive you for it. Because you were always wondering, do I hear something? He said night times were the worst in Vietnam. But I'll tell you, that same alertness is what we should be put into the, put into the coming of Christ, his return. Being completely alert. Whether he comes in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, be awake. Be on your guard. Be watching for his coming. Now, some of you in this room tonight, this is sadly the closest you will ever get to heaven. This time right here. Hearing Jesus' words, hearing his call is the closest you may ever get to heaven if you don't respond to it. I'll tell you right now, it is an act of God's love and his grace reaching out to you that he put it, a guy like me, I know, not much. God chose the shameful things of the world to impress, to, to bring down the wise. But that God puts you in this room to hear his wonderful good news that he loves you that he desires a relationship with you, that it is through the work that Jesus Christ did on that cross that you've been forgiven, not by any work for you. We're not forgiven by doing things. We're forgiven purely by Jesus Christ. But we certainly on that day want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We don't want to be asleep. We don't want to be apathetic towards his coming. And you definitely don't want to be caught without him. When you had the opportunity. I can imagine no greater regret than on that day as the Bible says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Even those that with the greatest hatred say, oh, Jesus is foolishness. Oh, God is, God's not real. Oh, God's dead. 
every knee and every tongue will be confessing Jesus is Lord. And I can only imagine the regret as they're confessing that he is Lord, knowing I had an opportunity. I had an opportunity to change my eternal destiny. So let me encourage you tonight, if you haven't run to that cross, if you haven't come to Jesus Christ and said, Lord, I'm a sinner, save me. If you haven't come into his presence and say, Lord, I'm ready to follow you, do so tonight. Don't leave this room without Jesus Christ. I can't tell you how important it is. Remember the stress that Jesus put in this passage. When you see these things happening, don't just get out. It's the same intense and stress that I'm giving to you this call to say don't leave without knowing Jesus Christ and being forgiven of your sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are good to us. Jesus, we thank you so much for your words. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to fear the future. The future is already written. God, we don't blindly go into the future, but we know, God, you hold our future. You know the end from the beginning, and you know what will happen. Lord Jesus, we're excited for you to come. But, Lord, we know that you won't come until you're ready. And until that day, Lord, we just pray that you would help make us faithful servants in your kingdom. Help us to be faithful with the message of your gospel. Help us to be faithful with the ministry of reconciliation. The lost, the dead, and their sins and transgressions to you, the living God. And if you're in this room tonight and you know that you need to repent of something, you need to turn from sin in some way, and you want to cry out to the living God for your salvation, I want to invite you to do so. Just pray, Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner. I've done things my way. I've rejected you. I've ignored you. But Lord, I thank you that you cared for me. Forgive me of my sin. I want to receive what you did for me on that cross. I thank you that you died in my place and that you rose from the dead conquering death. Jesus, I'm ready to follow you. If you prayed that prayer tonight, know that you're welcome into the kingdom of God. You've been brought from death to life, the scriptures say. We thank you, dear God. Bless our worship now, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.